I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. David Weil, MD, and author of Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. A young father with a rare form of lung cancer has been turned down for a transplant by several hospitals. A kid who was considered not smart enough to be worthy of a transplant. A young mother dying on the waiting list in front of her two small children. The nights waiting for donor lungs to become available. Understanding that someone needed to die so that another patient could live. These are some of the stories. An exhale, a memoir about Dr. David Weil's 10 years spent directing the lung transplant program at Stanford. Through these stories, he shows not only the miracle of transplantation, but also how it is a very human endeavor performed by people with strengths and weaknesses, powerful attributes and profound flaws. It is also the story of a transplant doctor's slow recognition that he needed to step away from the front lines. Dr. Wiles' writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Salon, Newsweek, the Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, and many more. Welcome to the show, Dr. David Weil. Thank you. Great to be here. Before I give you a chance to speak, I just want to say I actually didn't read the book. I listened to the book on Audible, and I have to say I'm a little skeptical usually about listening to books on Audible because a lot of writers are now voicing their books, and they're terrible, but you have a great voice. I listened to the whole book on Audible. It was great. So you're not only a physician, but you're also a voiceover artist, I have to say. So it was very, I recommend listening to it. <laughs> Thank you. It didn't feel that way coming out, but thank you for the compliment. Yeah, well, it's true, because I do. I listen to a lot of them. Some I just can't. I have to read them, because they really shouldn't be doing the voice, but you should be. All right, this is a transplantation, and I have worked in the field as a social worker, so I have a somewhat of an understanding of, of obviously, the transplant process. But So the book is about two things, right? I mean, you talk about it's about your work at Stanford and other hospitals as a transplant physician, but then also your personal journey in terms of how you, uh, how you, as I said, I guess, at the end, that you had to step away from it. And so can we, what sh- we should really start with what is involved in a transplant uh program at a hospital? Yeah, transplant programs are complicated. There's a lot of moving pieces, as you might imagine. And at the center of all of this is the patient, but you've got hospital administrators, you've got doctors and nurses, you've got social workers, you've got all kind of stakeholders, including family members. But at the center of all of this is the patient. And sometimes all of those stakeholders align perfectly to get the transplant done successfully. And as I write about in the book, sometimes they don't. And, you know, both are true. I've experienced both in my career. And, you know, it, when, when things go well, it's the best thing in the world. It's like, like nothing else. But when things go badly, it's devastating to all of those stakeholders. So first, doctor, you have to get the, you have to procure, you have to get the lung. Take us through, because some people have no idea what the process really is. We have to get the lung, transplant the lung, lung, and then it's post-surgical stuff that happens. uh, Maybe take one of the patients or examples in the book. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, basically, you know, in order to get a transplant, you have to have a disease that is amenable to transplantation. In other words a disease that a transplant will work in. 
you go through an evaluation process, which is intensive, and then you get on a waiting list, which is nerve-wracking to be waiting 24-7 for that call to come in. And then from our transplant team perspective, we're waiting for a donor 24-7, 365 to become available, and they can become available at any time, day or night, and, and do. So once that match happens between the recipient and the donor, the operation takes place, and our operations are somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight hours. Once the operation's complete, then the post-operative care begins in the ICU and hopefully will extend for many, many years afterwards as the patient does, you know, hopefully very well. And I've, uh, you know, obviously had the privilege of taking care of hundreds of patients that have received a transplant, some of whom have gone on to live a decade or more or 20 years in some instances. And so we develop a very close relationship with the people we take care of. So you said 20 years, is that usually max? Well, I guess it depends on how old the patient is and how sick they were to begin with. I want to go back to the eval, though, the evaluation. You evaluate from a, you evaluate whether the lung is appropriate for your patient, the one that they are going to transplant, but then there's also the psychosocial evaluation of the patient themselves, right, whether or not they would be yeah. appropriate or would be able to withstand it, the transplant, both physically and emotionally. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I write about in the book that these, these kind of subjective psychosocial evaluations are some of the more vexing in our field. So we, as a team, would meet every week to select candidates for our waiting list. And those, th- those, that evaluation process would include not just medical criteria, but also psychosocial criteria. Was the patient uh, compliant with their medical regimen? Did they have a family support system in place that could help them post-operatively? Did they have the financial wherewithal uh, to pay for their medications? All of these factors went into deciding who is and who is not a good transplant candidate. But I must say, and I write about this in the book, some of the more concerning periods during my career was when we let our own value system enter into the discussion. In other words, whether or not we liked a patient or whether or not we perceived the patient as a valuable member of society. I, I think because human beings are doing this kind of work, those kind of considerations naturally creep into the discussion, although they shouldn't. Yeah, and th- let's talk about that because I think that's probably uh, that's critical or that's important, as you say, in terms of who gets who is able to get the transplant. Let's talk about age and, and maybe related to the story you tell about your father because I think you said in the book, at least at the time you were at Stanford, most people who were over 60 were not eligible for a transplant. Then your father at age 68, he be- needs a liver transplant. Then everything changes and uh, you are instrumental, I guess, in making it possible for him to get the transplant, but then feel guilty about it. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, age was one criteria that, that always came into the discussion. And as my career went went on, and I had a 25-year career in the transplant uh, field, we got more and more comfortable transplanting people that were older and older. 
And, you know, I think all of us realize that 50 is not what it used to be and 60 is not what it used to be and 70 is not what it used to be. And when my father required a liver transplant, he was 68, and this was in 2001. And that, at the time, was considered too old, quote-unquote, to get a transplant. And I don't know if my influence ultimately tipped the scale in his favor or not. I don't think I'll ever really know the answer to that. But they took, the transplant team took a risk on a 68-year-old, uh, and it, it worked. He, he ultimately got an additional 12 years and then passed away at, at age 80, uh, but had 12 very good years after his liver transplant. Yeah. Well, we have a president who's 78. <laughs> I mean, we've, <laughs> That's right. Right. A lot of old people in Congress, too. Um, But anyway, so, okay, age is one thing. What about uh, mental capacity? Because there was one young man in the book who had, uh, who was, I guess, not considered smart enough to get a transplant. He wouldn't be able to handle it. He wouldn't be able to take his medication. He wouldn't know what to do. And you sort of fought for him, it sounds, and uh, he was able to get the transplant. That's a good story. Yeah, this was a patient that I called Brian in the book who had developmental disorder and had learning difficulties. He had an IQ of around 65, I think, uh, at the time of his transplant. So his family was very much involved with his care. And when he came up for discussion in one of those conference rooms where we talked about potential transplant candidates, one of the surgeons on the team said, look, he's probably just not smart enough to get a transplant. I don't think we should use lungs on somebody like this. And I pushed back on that. But it made me think after the meeting that we're valuing lives, aren't we? When we say that this guy is not the same kind of benefit to society as you and I are or some of your listeners are, then we're making value judgments that we really shouldn't be making. And so I found that that particular patient really got me attuned early on in my career to try to avoid making value judgments of of this sort. Just basically look at it as objectively as possible and say, can we save this gentleman's life? Can he do well after his transplant, even if he requires family help? But it was illustrative, I think, of the subjective nature of what we do. Yeah, which brings up another issue, I guess, related to that. We tend to side with people who look like us, act like this. You talk about in the book, um, I mean, it brings up the issue of of race and ethnicity. And all of that comes into play, or shouldn't, but does. And that one has to be, if you're on the team, I guess, be aware of how you're making decisions and how that impacts you. Um, And, I think that's an, another important point that you that you that you cover in the book. Um, what would you say? I mean, let's talk about some of the when people die because we're always talking about you know transplant is like I don't know if you can use the word but sexy it's like you have a transplant program at the hospital and, and I think you say this too you know it's it's if you can do transplants you can do appendectomies so you know this is great we have a transplant program um, but there's a lot of suffering and a lot of mistakes. Maybe we should talk about one of the major mistakes that you you mentioned in the book, which is kind of scary. 
Yeah, and, you know, because this is a human endeavor, there are mistakes made, even in very good transplant programs. And mistakes get made and medical errors get made in hospitals throughout the country every single day. And, in fact, some statistics show that up to 250,000 deaths per year are due to medical errors, which is unacceptable but continues to this day. And I talked about in the book early on in my career also where the the wrong lung was procured for a transplant. So we essentially were trying to do a right lung transplant, but yet came back to the hospital with the left lung. So a mistake was made side to side. And we've uh, all seen stories of amputations occurring where the right lung gets, a re- uh, right leg gets removed instead of the left one. And these are the kind of medical errors that we've tried to make checklists about, like the airline pilots do, and do other measures to reduce them, but they still persist. And they persist because, you know, healthcare at the end of the day is performed by human beings who make mistakes. What we've got to try to do, though, is take out the human element as much as we can, perhaps even using artificial intelligence, to make it so that human error is not going to be a factor. And that's something that we haven't gotten quite right uh, in this country, uh, but I think that there's some measures that are being put in place now that will reduce the human errors. But you're right, transplantation is no different from any other field of medicine, but the mistakes are generally more dramatic in our field just because of the nature of trying to swap out organs on any given night. But you have the personality, uh, which was, I mean, not only are you the, well, you, you're the physician, but you kind of, it, it comes across in the book and also talking to you now, but you're the physician with a personality and you get close, I mean, and your relationship with your patients, I think, reflects that as you describe it in the book. You get close to people. Um, you're m- more informal than a lot of doctors that I've worked with in hospitals as a social worker um, in a good way. So... I'm assuming that has a really positive impact on your patients. I think it did. I, I think the relationships I was able to develop my, with my patients and their family members, and that's critical because when we take a patient on to transplant, we're taking the whole family on. And I got very close to, to these folks, and as a matter of fact, I still am close to them to this day, you know, via social media. We we do Zoom calls together, we email back and forth. That, for me, is the thing that I miss the most. That was the most important to me and the reason I got up in the morning to do, to do the job. I think the danger in, in having that kind of relationship with your patients is when it doesn't go well, it's particularly devastating. I'm not trying to make the argument that other doctors don't care about their patients. I think they do. But the question is, can they maintain some kind of distance so that when the inevitable happens and we lose patients, that they can stay emotionally healthy? That, as I write about in the book, wasn't possible for me toward the end of my career. I just couldn't take the losses anymore. And that's why I stepped out. So you didn't maintain that, I guess you're describing... A delicate balance. Uh, so you eventually, the last patient that you saw, I think this was at Stanford, right? You kind of sort yeah. of had a breakdown, like PTSD kind of breakdown. 
and decided that it was time to leave after being there for 10 years. You had a, you had a bow out. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, the, my entire career in the field was around 20 years on the front line. And the, the period at Stanford was particularly intense. I had a team of 55 people that I was trying to manage. We had a very big active program. And so that period was the most intense of my career. And I write about toward the end of my time there that I basically knew that it was time to, to step away. And it was, it was really done in a self-preservation kind of way. It, it, it was really no other reason than that. I, I, I didn't think that I was going to be able to do the job until I was 65 years old and there'd be a retirement party with a gold watch. I just didn't think that that was in the cards for me. I, I, I thought, you know, in my early 50s that it was basically time to go. And early 50s is young. I mean, for, in most professions, let's say, to be talking about it's time to go, but you left and then started, then left and moved, I guess, right back to New Orleans. You were in Palo Alto. Um, and yeah, I'll tell you what was surprising. And then you turned to religion. I was really surprised by that in the book, turned to Catholicism. Your wife is Catholic. Your father was a German Jew. Uh, interesting how that happened. I, that seemed to me like a, a, a complete turnaround. I don't know that it was, but I, I, yeah, a spiritual awakening, I guess we could call it. Yeah, I, I, had, I had had within me, I think, spirituality, but I never had any formal religion. I was, even before I became Catholic, was a Bible reader and someone that I think believed in a very broad sense spiritually, but never had any formal religion in my life, as you mentioned, my father emigrated to this country in 1939 as a German Jew, and he was had turned his back on his religion. My mother is from Selma, Alabama, of civil rights fame, and was Southern Baptist. She had turned her back on her religion, even though she was quite religious when she was growing up. And basically, we um, children had no formal religion when we were young. We weren't sure if we were Jewish, <laughs> if we were Baptist, if we were none of the above. <laughs> and well, You were mixed. Basically, yeah, that's right, uh, without, without really practicing any religion. And, you know, when I got married to my wife, Jackie, who was a cradle Catholic, is a cradle Catholic, uh, devout Catholic, my kids were baptized. They were off going to church every Sunday, and I was off either going to the hospital or riding my bike around California. <laughs> and I just didn't think, when I hit my own crisis, the loss of my father and the disintegration of my career, that I could really do that anymore. I felt like I needed to formalize my religion, and Catholicism did appeal to me in, in, on many different levels. So right now, Right as we're speaking, what are you're back into the field? As I understand, you're back doing work, not full time, not like the Stanford thing. You you described yourself as uh, transplantation is a complicated dance in which the choreographer is key, and that was you. I'm assuming you're not quite. Yeah, that was when you were at Stanford. No, 
No. Yeah, no. My my life now doesn't doesn't look anything like my time at Stanford. I basically am a transplant consultant right now, so I help transplant programs across the country that are underperforming for a variety of reasons. And I kind of come in, diagnose the problem, and then stay with the program for sometimes years to try to help them through and perform better. And that involves sometimes dealing with team dysfunction, clinical issues, administrative problems, financial ones, you name it. But it's very different than the role I had at Stanford where I was quarterback on the field. I feel like now I'm on the coach kind of calling the plays, if you will. <laughs> I never met a sports metaphor I didn't like, so there's, a, there's one. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. I don't think people yeah. realize all, you know, people think of trans, the general population perhaps thinks of transplant, you, you know, you get the, whatever, well, in this case, a lung and you transplant it and you hopefully it's a successful transplant. But I don't think all of the stuff that you, people that you have to deal with, you mentioned administration, you mentioned other professionals, you mentioned there's a whole, in a hospital situation, potpourri of stuff that you have to deal with in terms on an everyday level, monies, all those kinds of things. And um, right. yeah, and you're in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's probably the reason I wrote the book, actually. I wanted the reader not to learn everything there is to know about transplant, but also, but really just to understand what it feels like to do the job. And as you mentioned, this is this is a human endeavor, what we're trying to do, and it involves a lot of people. So whenever you do anything that involves a lot of people, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be misaligned interests. All of that was true during my time in the field, and I write about that in the book. But the one thing that I tried my best to do is remember why we were there. We were there to save lives, and we were there on behalf of the person in the bed that was sick. And there are times when I think hospitals, physicians lose sight of that, and that's unfortunate. That's really unfortunate, especially if you're the person in the bed who doesn't really care about all the politics, doesn't care about the money. They want to get well. And that was brought home to me crystal clear when my father needed a transplant. And I didn't care about team dynamics, and I didn't care about what the hospital was trying to do with their transplant program. I just wanted him to live. And I think that your listeners probably intuitively understand that that's how hospitals work. But I wanted to actually show it as best I could. Well, I think you did. Uh, the book is great. It, it was, um, I think one of the things you pointed out, too, that you're dealing with very sick people, not just people who are in there for minor surgery or these, these are people who are very, very sick. I don't know. And, and I, it's it, cystic fibrosis. What did you say? Pulmonary fibrosis. Um, really um, and have been sick for a long time. And I think the other thing you say, which I think is social workers use this too, it's, it's a family disease. It's not just the individual. Yeah. It's the whole family who's involved. That's right. Yeah, which is That's a whole different. Yeah. 
you know, I was, uh, I did a research, I, the Health and Human Services, they did a research project and hired social workers. This was a long time ago to call up families and to, they had given their permission to find out what their reasons were for either donating their loved one's organs or not donating. And I did that for a year. I, I couldn't do mm. it. I, you know, and reading your book, I'm, I was, oh my gosh, it was, um, I, they wanted me to do it for another year in another venue, and I, I couldn't, it was not for me. I mean, it was really overwhelming. I felt like I was invading their um, personal space, and it was um, it was a very difficult project. I had to walk away from it, so I admire you, all the work that you do and have done. Um, one of the last question, do you think that you know, you can get knee replacements and you can get hip replacements. Do you think you're ever going to be able to get lung replacements that aren't real people's lungs or cadaver lungs? I, I do. I think that there's actually, there's a lot of interesting work going on right now with regard to xenotransplant, which is taking an animal organ and putting it into a human. It's, it's, it's already starting to be done with kidneys, at least in an experimental phase. So I do, I do think that there's going to be a time when we can transplant a, an animal lung into a human. I also think there's going to be a time, and I'm working with a company that, that has a beat on this already, is we're going to be able to actually make a lung and put it in somebody. So we'll be actually able to manufacture one and put it in. I, I don't think that's as futuristic as it may sound. I think it's, I think it's going to be well within our lifetime. So I'm optimistic. So we can order one on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> it might not be. It might not be quite that simple, but I think that um, I always imagine that in the back of Stanford there would be a bunch of pigs out there, and we could go pick a lung out um, for somebody. But I, I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there. It's never fast enough, but it, I, I think we're getting there. That sounds good to me. We have to say goodbye. This is a great interview with you. The book is great, really. It's it's for everyone. Either listen to it on Audible or buy it at Amazon. Uh, I've been talking to Dr. David Weil, MD. The title of the book is Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. Um, doctor, tell us website and or websites to go to for more information about uh, your work, your book. Sure. Uh, David Weil, so it's David, W-E-I-L-L-M-D dot com. You can find uh, out information about the book, about the other things that I write, what I'm up to generally, more than you want to know, but it's all there. <laughs> no, we do want to know. You're a very interesting man. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. Appreciate yep. the conversation. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 